What a beautiful hymn, and uh, Paul Gerhardt, of course, uh, one of the great hymn writers in all of history. He was a man who understood trial and tribulation, having lived through the Thirty Years' War, lost his entire family to disease, to warfare, and much of his congregation to the same. And yet, uh, his words, as uh, any Christian should, his words breathe out the hope, the confidence that we all have through Christ Jesus, our Savior. We bow our heads and pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. So I want to begin with a question. What do Gregor Mendel, Vincent van Gogh, Galileo Galilei and Jesus Christ all have in common. What do they all have in common? Well, among other things, none of them were appreciated and all of them were misunderstood during their lifetimes. Gregor Mendel was a Roman Catholic monk. He was the father of the modern science of genetics and yet his work was ignored by the scientific community until years after his death. Vincent van Gogh uh, is known as one of the most influential artists in all of the history of Western art. But during his lifetime, he sold only one painting and his work went unrecognized by the world. Today, a Van Gogh painting, a single Van Gogh, will sell for 80, 100 million dollars or more. But during his lifetime, people ignored his work. Galileo has rightly been called the father of modern science. He's been credited with many discoveries in astronomy and physics, and yet his work was rejected not only by the Roman church, but also by many in the scientific community of his day. Those men experienced in a small way the same rejection and isolation that our Lord experienced, not only during his earthly ministry, but really throughout his entire life. Roman numeral one on the back of your worship bulletin during his earthly ministry, Jesus was alone in the world. He was alone. Isaiah had predicted it. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, and we esteemed him not. That's looking forward to who this man would be, one whom we would reject. And John writes in the opening lines of his gospel, he was in the world, and the world was made by him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own would not receive him. You know the story, um, the account, when he was 12 years of age, and he's in the temple. He's actually teaching the teachers of the law by asking them questions. That's how you would teach. You ask questions. And so he's asking questions of the teachers. And his parents have no idea where he is. When they find him, 
His mother Mary says to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? We've been looking everywhere for you. And he replied, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know I had to be in my father's house? His, his parents did not understand him. This is what it means to be alone, to be misunderstood. In Mark 3, Jesus is teaching his disciples. This is really his surrogate family, his eternal family. He's teaching them. And his mother and his brothers show up in order to take him away forcibly because they believe he's out of his mind. He was accused by others of being demon-possessed. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before his crucifixion, when he needed support, he asked three of his disciples to, to keep watch with him in prayer. But they would fall asleep. And he would come back and he would say, could you not watch with me even one hour? What aloneness our Lord must have felt. And then finally, on the cross, he cries out in the words of Psalm 22, looking ahead to his crucifixion, David wrote, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the end of his life, in the most extreme condition. Even God, his Father, turns his back on his Son for our sake, that he might graciously turn his countenance, his mercy, his forgiveness toward you and me. Well, this is our Lord. And point A, his opponents resist him in the synagogue in Capernaum. There's a man with a withered hand. And Jesus is being watched closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus looked around in anger because of their hardness of heart. And he said, which is lawful, to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he restored it. And we read that the Pharisees went out to plot his death. You see, that hardness of heart that is evident in his opponents is, is a, it's a resistance to whatever he says or does. Nothing he says, nothing he does will change their minds. That's hardness of heart. And the real tragedy is it's present in his disciples. Point B, his disciples are no better. Point A, his opponents resist him. They resist him. Point B, his disciples are no better. They see Jesus walking on the water in our gospel lesson for today, and they think it's a ghost. Not Jesus' ghost, okay? But they think it's a spirit. Jesus says, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And he steps into the boat, the wind ceases. And we read that the disciples are astounded. 
They're amazed, and, and amazement is one of the kind of sub-themes of Mark's gospel. But this is not the amazement of faith. This is the amazement of unbelief. You see, what Jesus just did is something only God can do. And they're not believing that he could do that. They're astounded, you see. For they did not, verse 52, they did not understand about the loaves. They did not understand that once again, they saw this man do something only God could do. It doesn't add up. It can't be. But their hearts were hardened, resistant. At least at this point in the ministry of our Lord, their hearts are resistant to whatever Jesus says or does that doesn't fit their paradigm of a Messiah, a king like David. Nothing more, nothing less. But something and someone much more than David is here. Point B1. These are echoes of the Exodus. He feeds the multitude in desolate places. He did that in the Gospel reading last week. He fed the 5,000, five loaves, two fish, in a desolate place, meaning a place where there were no people, there was therefore no food. This is what God did in the desert for the Israelites in the book of Exodus. And Jesus is doing it. And then point two, he makes a way through the sea. That's what God did for the Israelites. He parted the waters. He made a way for them. Well, Jesus doesn't need to part the waters. He can walk on them. This is something only God can do. Repeatedly in the Old Testament, God walks upon the waves. Here's Jesus doing it. Echoes of the Exodus. And he passes by the disciples. This is something God does. When Moses is on Mount Sinai, he says, show me your glory. And God responds correctly, no one can see my face and live, but I'll place you in a cave in the side of the mountain, and I will cause my glory to pass by, and you'll see my backside. And we've said before, we've made the point earlier, that the backside of God, the hindquarters of God, the unacceptable part of God, kind of the ugly part, is that. It is the cross. It is our Savior, crucified, God in the flesh, dying for the sins of the world. That's the backside, the rear end of God. But see, that's the glory that he causes to pass by. And then later on, in 1 Kings, Elijah is on Mount Sinai, and he's discouraged, and he's depressed, and he's alone. Queen Jezebel is seeking his life, and he says, all hope is lost, God. And what does God do? He causes his glory to pass by. And you see, in our gospel lesson for today, Jesus is passing by the disciples. He intends to do that. It's, it's an echo of the Old Testament, how God would reveal himself to people then. He's doing it now in the person of Jesus Christ. And yet, point three, hardness of heart persists. Unbelief persists in the disciples. Can you relate? You find some things hard to accept in the faith, hard to believe, hard to swallow? Well, join the club. 
We're people. We're weak. We need grace. And that grace is present in the very one we have a hard time accepting. Roman numeral two, we experience aloneness ourselves. We experience aloneness, loneliness, isolation. It's due to sin, it always is, the sin of our first parents in the garden. Sin creates distance between people. Sin isolates people. We all know that. And this loneliness is on the rise. I cite a Cigna study. Cigna is, of course, a global health service company, and they they surveyed some 20,000 adults, uh, Americans, ages 18 and older. And this is one of the conclusions. Loneliness has the same impact on mortality, on death, as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, which makes it even more dangerous than obesity. It's not that obesity is good, it's that loneliness is that bad. 46% of Americans describe themselves as lonely all the time or sometimes. 46%. In the 1970s, it was 11%. Today, 54% of Americans say that no one knows them well. And young people suffer more from loneliness than retirees do. Social media can increase loneliness if it does not lead to -to face-to-face interaction. What we need to treat loneliness is face-to-face contact with people. Now, social media might facilitate that, it might not, depending on how you use it. So it's not a judgment about social media, even though I'm not on it, (laughs) okay. Um, It's just a fact. Face-to-face contact is, is necessary. So, loneliness is a problem for all of us, and as if that were not enough, point B, as followers of Christ, we are strangers and exiles in this world. We are strangers, that's the estimate of God's word, that's the opinion of of the apostles. We are strangers and exiles in this world simply because we're Christians. There's isolation. I think many of us increasingly, either we experience it or we read about it. Peter writes in his letter, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. You see, the world wants us to affirm it and everything it does and everything it believes and and all of its agenda. The world wants you to affirm it and when you don't, you kind of prick the world's conscience without even trying. That doesn't make the world comfortable, you see, and so you're you're shuttled to the side. I was listening to a a man the other day. um, He happens to be 
an atheist scientist. Not all scientists are atheists. Many are believers, as they should be. Uh, but this was an atheist scientist, and, and this was his, his opinion about believers in God. He said, you have no place in the public discourse. You have nothing to contribute, okay? If, if you want to believe what you want to believe in, in your own corner, do so, but don't speak out. You see, that, that is an exiling of people of faith, a marginalizing of people of faith. And you hear that more and more today. I, I would never hear that growing up, but I hear it increasingly today. It's the reality. Jesus said, in effect, in John 17, we're in the world, but not of it. So there's this distance automatically, you see, by virtue of the fact that we've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into light, the light of Christ. And so there's a difference. But thank God for the difference, and if it were not for the difference, we could not look back upon those people still in darkness and pity them and pray for them and reach out to them. And point three, Roman numeral three, Jesus removes his aloneness and ours by seeking fellowship, A, with God. He seeks fellowship with God. This is why he was always disappearing and going to remote places to pray. You see, the Holy Trinity is eternal fellowship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons in one divine essence, a loving community. God is by nature a relational being, therefore he seeks relationship with you and me. That's his nature. And so Jesus seeks refuge in that relationship that is God. Three persons in one divine entity. And then he seeks fellowship, point B, with us. Jesus said, I've come to seek and save the lost. Those who understand their need. Many don't understand their need. We pray they will. There may have been a time in your life, there probably was, when you did not understand your need for forgiveness for Jesus. But now, thank God, you do. He came to seek and save the lost, those who have need of him. Genesis chapter 2, God looked upon the creation. After pronouncing all of it good, he looked at the man who had everything that you and I could ever want. He had wealth. He had position in the creation, the very apex of it. But God looked at the man and he said, not good. It is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And he caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep. And when Adam awoke, there was Eve. There was community. Community for the man. In the very same way, Jesus fell into a deep sleep. After all, he referred to death as sleep. He changed our view of death. By rising again, and by raising others, to him it's just sleep. But Jesus fell into a deep sleep, the sleep of death, and he was raised. 
and the church is the result. The bride of Christ is the result. The community of God's people is the result. God seeks union, marriage with sinful humanity. Imagine that. A union that is permanent, that is loving, and that is fruitful. And point two, marriage involves a merger of resources. At least it should. The man should not have his things and the woman have her things. No, it's a merger of things. There's togetherness here. In the very same way, we as the bride of Christ, the church, we bring something to the relationship. We bring sin to the relationship. Christ brings righteousness to the relationship. And so we're talking about that great exchange. He takes upon himself our sinfulness. We receive his righteousness, and therefore we have a home in heaven. Therefore we have access to God now and in eternity. Marriage involves a merger of resources, our sin and Christ's righteousness. And then point C, only in light of Christ's death and resurrection, only in light of his death and resurrection can humanity understand, believe in, and experience community with him and with one another. Our hearts are hard, just like the disciples, until we're transformed into believing hearts. The disciples did not understand who Jesus was and what he was up to until after he died and rose. And then he said to them on the road to Emmaus, was it not necessary that the Christ first suffer and then enter into his glory? That's the pattern. It's the pattern throughout the Old Testament. Suffering first, then glory. It's the pattern for you and me. Suffering first, then glory. And his suffering and his glorification restores our community with God and with one another. John the Apostle wrote, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. You see, he's the common point around which we gather. Jesus said, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. You see, as we draw near to the Lord, as we are drawn to him, the Lord draws us together into a community. This is God's answer to aloneness. And I like the way the psalmist puts it in Psalm 68. God describes himself in this way, a father to the fatherless, the protector of the widow, and I settle the lonely in a home. I settle the lonely in a home. That home is the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church. As Adam slept and awoke, and his bride was the result, our Lord has slept and he has awakened. And you and I are the result. Through his loneliness, through his isolation, he ministers to our loneliness 
and removes that aloneness that afflicts us all. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus, amen.